the GritFlix.com podcast. I'm Stuart Wright, and this is the Brickflix.com podcast. On this podcast, rather than critique or score films out of five or ten, or tell you what we love or what we hate, I sit down with the filmmaker and get them to give us an insight into the process of making their movie, what they discovered, what they learned, all those kind of things. Or I get to sit down with a horror film fan and get them to tell me five great British horror films that they think we should all take interest in. Either way, this podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So, if you enjoy it, please make sure to subscribe in iTunes and if you've got that bit more time, write me a review too. It all helps. Thank you. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and today I'm talking five great British horror films with filmmaker Nev Pierce. Hello, Nev. Hello. Now, I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but we've just recorded another podcast, so we've basically had a beer break, and here we are to do the five great British horror films, aren't we, Nev? We are indeed. Maybe we should add another beer. That'd be more loquacious. Indeed, indeed. If I could offer it yet, yeah, I would, but the uh, the storeroom only had the two, so I feel like a real tight-fisted get, but uh, I'll be more prepared next time. Right then. Rules are, Nev, five films, five minutes on every film. I'll have a timer, and when the five minutes go, we move on to the next film. Okay, I'll try oh, only because it's more for me than you, because I'll, I'll, I'll quite happily talk about anything and everything, you know. A born gobshite is a born gobshite, you know. Um, but I want to make sure we cover all the films and give, give each one at least the energy, because I think every film gets the energy of why we like it. Mm. And I think the other thing for the listener is that this isn't about Neb giving the world the definitive five great British horror films. This is about five... British horror films that Nev thinks are worth highlighting and we'll talk about the whys when we get to them. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to do them in reverse date, not reverse date order, earliest to newest. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with your 1960 pick, Peeping Tom. Um, a, A fairly controversial film at its release, I think Well, we both agree, don't we? Absolutely. So what is it about that film that makes it a great British horror for you? I think the thing about Peeping Tom, and I don't actually remember the first time I saw it. it probably, actually, no, I think it was a magazine, Neon magazine, back in the day, did a piece on it. And probably okay. made me go and watch it. Is it still really disturbing? Like, I'm not surprised that it, I mean, it's credited or blamed for wrecking Michael Powell's career. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Strictly true. He did make other films afterwards, which just didn't do that well. Um but it's still really shocking. It's the kind of film that makes you want to have a shower, but with bleach after you watch it. Mm. Um, it really implicates you in all the violence in it. It's, in a way, I think, the first slasher movie in terms of it puts you in the point of view of the killer. But then, in 1960, people were just horrified by the literal. People weren't talking in that kind of postmodern terms of it's voyeurism and asking us to consider what our role is in entertainment. Mm. And, and, and I'm not entirely sure how aware Powell was of that when he made the movie. I don't know what... I mean, if you, you've written about this movie, haven't you? I've written about it, although I've not read a lot about him talking about his reactions to it. A lot of other people have talked about how great it is. I mean, Martin mm. Scorsese has talked about how great it is and how it teaches you a lot about film directing in itself in terms mm. of 
watching this guy make his own movie of the people that he's killing. Mm. Um, so what does that teach us to, in terms of directing film? I think it's just about point of view. Okay. And about like observing and also... Um, I'm not. Ask Mark He's cleverer than me. Well, I mean, I get. I mean, David Mole, uh, a cineast who's been on here, he, he he basically says that the reputation of Powell, if not the career, was saved by Scorsese. Him him lauding the film at a later date after it had been critically savaged, and it was his enthusiasm for the film that kind of started its ascendancy as a as a film we now look back on and go like you say. The proto slasher movie, or yeah, I think critics of the time, someone said it should be like flashed down a sewer. Mm. It got an absolute kicking, and I think a couple of people then revised their opinion down the line and were like, okay, we've maybe been too harsh on this. I don't think Powell himself. I mean, I think you mentioned to me before we started mm. chatting that it's not really got a prominent mention in his own autobiography. Yeah, he's on seven hundred pages, and he kind of mentions it about four times, which is kind of as a memoir goes. You'd have thought. Something that's kind of recognised as being uh, a sort of pin, a sort of first first base for uh, for that kind of horror film. I think it's really interesting though to how what you make uh, your opinion on what you make, or in terms of what you experience, can be so influenced by what place you are and where you are in your own life. Mm. I guess he probably just associated all, all of it with misery. But you had thingy, didn't you? As well, you had the actress. Uh, what's she called? Um, Moira Shearer. Yeah, and she was in Red Shoes. Yeah. So there's a, a a sort of a person who's considered a gift to act, you know, a gift to us from film, and then suddenly she's playing this role in Peeping Tom, which is not so nice. Yeah, and it's a sequence which is astonishing because you kind of you really you root for her and you know that something terrible is going to happen. You mm. can't quite believe it. It's still it's still shocking. Mm. I watched it again recently to write a piece on it for Empire, mm. and it was like, oh, I just need to get out of the house afterwards. You can't believe that it's more than fifty years old. And and it's it, it it's interesting because obviously we live in a world now where we can film anything with our phones and stuff. And this was this idea of the kind of upstairs <laughs> upstairs in the news agent you take dirty pictures and stuff, and and that was a sort of hidden away in plain sight because nobody really was shot by that going on, with it? Oh, it's a great, it's a horrible scene where a girl comes into us for a chocolate bar from a news agent who's either I think he's either just been selling porn, <laughs> like under the counter porn to somebody, or is just about to sell under the counter porn to somebody. Yeah. And again, it's about that sort of griminess, but you know, there's the respectable surface and the griminess underneath it. And the weird thing about the film is you end up sympathising quite a lot with the lead, um, Carl Burn, I think his name is. Um, even though you know from the first scene, you know that he's a wrong one. You know, you know that he's doing terrible things, but you end up really feeling sympathy for him because he's sort of experimented on by his dad as he was growing up. He's so sort of such a damaged kind of soul. Well, I guess I guess it's that thing that that fine line between, you know, the 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 ugly note that you get from a script. Make this person more, make your characters more likable, when in fact what people really want you to do is make them either a more believable or b more interesting. And he is interested, isn't he? And, he? and he and he gains our sympathy and empathy despite the evidence of his actions because we understand he's a tragic figure. Yeah, it's intriguing though that that film did so badly critically and commercially and then Psycho came out in the same year with a sympathetic lead who turns out to be a murderer. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, and that film also did great. Five minutes are up then. As, uh, as Edgar Broughton will, will sing. So we're going to jump to, um, let me look at my timeline now. 
we're going to jump to 1968. And I think you've, you've chosen a film here, you've chosen The Witchfinder General, which while I was getting ready for the show, I'd, you know, I never knew it was called The Conqueror Worm. I never knew this all the title. Yes, the other title, that was in America, wasn't it? I'm guessing it must be, because I'm like looking on the internet while I'm doing my little prep. And it was, and I've just never heard anyone talk, I've only ever seen it as Witchfinder General. It's a pretty terrible other title, isn't it's it? It's freaking shocking, isn't it? I mean, the full title, the UK title, is Matthew Hopkins' Witchfinder General, if you're on the credits. That's worse, then, yeah. yeah. We know who Matthew Hopkins is. We grow up with the witch fan of general. We just need to know. Um, now, I'm guessing... I mean, this film... There's two sides to it, isn't there? There's the, there's, it's a Michael Reeves film, the, 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 um, the director that would be king, that sadly alcohol and barbiturates took at the age of 25. But then this film arguably is all about Vincent Price. Yeah, it was an incredible performance from Price and a... Pro and a you know, I think Reeves didn't want him originally, he wanted Donald Pleasance. Go away. Yeah, and then couldn't get him, or I think the finances wanted price. Nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's changed. Um, yeah. And I think they What's wound, he worth in the box know, office? The is he? Yeah, they wound each other up throughout filming, I think. I mean, I can't imagine having the confidence that Reeves must have had at like, he was 24, I think, when he shot mm. him. And there's that famous exchange that they had where Price is getting really, really sick of him and says, young man, I've made 84 films, what have you done? And Reeves says, I've made three good ones. Did he really? It, that, it's, it's That's as English wit as you get, isn't it? Something to that effect. Uh, but Price is terrific in the movie, you know. Um, he's just really malignant. You know, he's not really, I mean, he's, he's still Vincent Price, but mm. he's not too ridiculously over the top. This, he's not theatre blood Vincent no, Price, is he? No, <laughs> although that's very enjoyable. But the thing, again, this is, this is another really grimy movie. Mm. You know, it's... Um, there's no supernatural element to it, obviously, despite the title. It's mm. all really about what you know, what evil and powerful men will do, yeah, um, and what people will go along with if they're driven by fear. Um, it's really, really, really uncomfortable. Because I guess, I guess, in 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 the kind of list of British films, and you've got another one in there. There is the kind of holy trinity, isn't there, of again, of folk horror films that became the benchmark. You have which kind of General, Blood and Satan's Claw, and Wicker Man. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, at the time, that wasn't a, that's a demarcation that's been made in the noughties, not something that was anyone was aware of at the time. So, because I think part of what, while it's reflecting on the witch hunts of of the time, the whole countercultural movement, the hippies, and the rise of what would be teenagers in their non non been involved in a war ways. Mm -hmm was reflected in the performance, in, in what was going on politically, wasn't it? it was like, despite the film being about a medieval time when we were kind of cruel to women because we wanted to maintain power. Well, the whole notion of this sort of civil war that's something which I don't feel, it doesn't feel like something we exploit as much as we could in British film, in terms of those are our westerns. I mean, this is a horror of course, movie in yeah, terms yeah, of it yeah. being really uncomfortable and properly, the violence properly matters mm. in it. But also, it really reminds me of like the Anthony Mann westerns he made with Jimmy Stewart. There's a kind of real angst to the lead character, the actor of, I've forgotten his name, um, helpfully. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it's a great horror film, I think, but I also think it's a great British Western. I suppose, yeah, because I guess in, in days of pre-industrialised Britain, provinces of Britain were all very distant from each other, so you could be Matthew Hopkins, couldn't you? You could get away with what he was doing and wreak the evil he was doing, and there'd be no price to pay. If you are powerful, bold and shameless, you can get away with everything. It turns out that's still the case. Yeah, not a lot changes in some sense, do What What do you think 
from a, from a filmmaker point of view, what is Michael Reeve doing then that makes it an interest that makes him a director that we've lost and we wish we wish we'd seen more? You know, I've got to be honest with you and say that's the only one of his films I've seen. Okay. And I don't know why that is. Now that I say, it, I feel very ignorant. I should have gone back and seen more things. Mm. Um, There's no punishment on this podcast. You're yeah, all right. No, I feel like I'm just like opening myself up for public shaming, but the film is just so ridiculously confident and mm. so of you know so unique. Mm. that I think also from a filmmaking point of view regardless of technique there's probably just some envy there and sadness because you're like, he was 24 mm. you know I can't imagine having the confidence to take on somebody like that at 24 mm. um, yeah and, it, and it, 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 it's the gr the griminess within the period which I guess is what is what makes it the horror because because in a way it's very much like a political drama as much as anything else isn't it because it's, it's dealing in like what we we used to be period stuff for like you know Royal families and who's the, who's in charge of what? Good old days of public execution. <laughs> like your cube, though. That was, in fact, Edgar Brottenbaum feel the most feel the most appropriate for that one. Right then, we're going to jump into um, one of the, the the second of of the three that, uh, and this one probably is more um, more linked to the countercultural movement, the hippies within. Because it's contemporary, although it's playing on pagan pasts, and that's 1973's *The Wicker Man*, or as I found out today, Rick Eklund called it *The Wiki Man*. <laughs> Amazing! I should call it that from from now on throughout this conversation. It sounds like a social media term. So, what is it? What is? I mean, when 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 it came out, it was a film that. Um, was a double bill with Don't Look Now. It was the B movie to Don't Look Now, which is a bonkers idea. It was cut to ribbons, so it was 88 minutes when it got released. Mm -hmm. um, the current final cut you could see, if you get it now on DVD, is 94 minutes. So what, and, and, and at the time, I don't think, I mean, a bit like even Don't Look Now, um, the time in the early 70s, I don't think they were thinking they were making a, a horror film. It was kind of unclassifiable, Wicker Man. It's only time that's decided to put it in the genre of horror. Um, what is it for you that makes it a good horror film? Well, I guess it's a mystery and, you know, definition of a horror film is something that people argue about mm. throughout. I mean, there's a couple of films here where you, on this list where you'd be like, are they horror, are they not? I think it scares you. Mm. you know, ultimately, it scares you. And it's, it presents as a mystery, but ultimately it is truly horrifying. Um, it's Adam Woodward versus Christopher Lee, as yeah. far as screen goes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and Woodward's really, really great. I yeah. mean, like, he's... Um, really commits to kind of his character is you know a bit of a mm. prick in some ways like he's a he's heroic in terms of he's going there he's a copper he's trying to find a missing mm. child but he is so like rigid and bound by his belief and i think that's one of the interesting things about the film is how you know is the christianity or the or or let's not say christianity necessarily is a certain legalism mm. religious legalism uh, against the kind of uh, mm. paganism and uh, ostensibly some kind of freedom but actually they're both lead characters and both cultures are kind of bound by these rules and dogma and belief overall belief over people mm. dogma instead of people instead of humanity I was fortunate enough and it's and I've told it before on this podcast so I'm sorry for the listener that knows this already but I'm telling Nev as a guest I watched I watched Wicker Man the last time I watched it was sat next to Robin Hardy Oh, amazing. Which was just the most amazing. If I could have sat down with my 21-year-old self and said, do you know what you'll be doing in a few years' time? You'll be sat, he'll be telling you which is his favourite shot, and he'll be telling you this, that, and the other. And one of the best things I learned from 
listening to him talk about the movie and thinking of the religious part, the religious element of it is, in the deep south of America, Wicker Man went down a storm. All right. Because, because they saw the film not as religious failure, but as the ultimate martyrdom film. Mm -hmm. So Woodward not losing his faith mm -hmm. and shouting for Jesus Christ at the end mm -hmm. was was a was a kind of modern day telling of the story of Job. It's like mm -hmm. no matter what you throw at me, I will not lose my faith. And when he was touring the film in America, that was the reaction they got in the southern states, which completely makes me read the film differently. Well, like I've never looked it's at it before. That makes me want to watch the film again. I mean, I was hoping to watch the all of these before mm. I came in. Obviously, I've completely failed. Um, because I guess in what you know, you could argue in one sense, well, what he does is admirable in terms of he doesn't give up what he believes mm. in the face of extreme violence against him, and he is trying to ultimately do a good thing throughout the film. Um, He's a bit up his own ass yeah. for, for most of the film. He he takes his god as a rod up his back, mm -hmm. and he's trying to correct all these people as if to say, "You're all wrong, and I'm right." Yeah while at the same time trying to get them to comply with his investigation over a missing girl, which obviously, the way the story pans out, is a lovely, lovely twist in terms of the, the tomfoolery the pagans have had his, his expense, exploiting that, that kind of strength of belief he has. Which is why I was really surprised to hear that the film appealed to religion, because I, I kind of thought, I, I kind of see it as a fatalistic thing, the kind of whole Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ bit. is like, and the way Woodward plays it, and maybe this is my own sort of bias as someone who isn't a believer, is that I watched it and go, yeah, look, there's the look of a man who is finding out that there isn't going to be a kind of bolt of lightning or divine intervention to save him. It's just going to be burning to death, and mm -hmm. that'll be horrible, which I'm not wishing upon him by any stretch of imagination. But it is, it is a real... That, that moment, and it's brilliantly done as a, as a moment in the film, because you're, you're forced to watch it, aren't you? You're, the camera isn't going anywhere. I think in a in a modern film, they might have been flashing around and getting lots of things, but instead they, they just hold, don't they, on, on, on a man who's they, about to die. They hold on it, and then the sun breaks as if it's the promise of new life. Mm. And both those traditions then have the idea of redemption through violence. Happy accident, that as well. I learned that from him. Really? When, 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 the, wicker man, when the wicker man falls over, they shot that film when the sun was low, like winter. So the, the idea of shooting on a day where there's a sun on the horizon, that's the sun going down, not the sun coming up, obviously. We see it as the sun going up. But that's the sun going down, and when they shot it, they only had one take. One take, Nev, and they get that shot. <laughs> well, maybe God was on their side. Exactly, exactly. So uh, there's a bit of love going on. Um, so we're going to jump now from 1973 all the way... In past the millennium now, we're skipping over the 80s like they don't matter. <laughs> the 90s can sod off. We're going to go with um, Edgar Wright's Shaun of the Dead. I really, really, really love this film. Okay. And my, my rationale, like, because it's a killer when you're asked to do a list of mm. anything, because you're like, oh no, you know. Yeah, you kind of feel like it's a Ten Commandments, you're going to carve it in stone. Yeah. But I thought, well, what are the five films that I've most wanted to rewatch? Mm. You know? And I mean, Shaun of the Dead I actually rewatched recently because it's just joyous. Mm. Um, 
I think it really understands zombie movies. It really understands what it is to be British. I know it's not a traditional horror film in terms of like it's not full of scares per se. You know, it's not meant to. Oh, there are some, but there are scares there, and I also think it really moves you, or I still find it moving. Mm. I don't think it's a spoof. You know, it's like it's, oh no, it's not know, Saturday the Fourteenth or anything like that. Um, it really understands Romero's movies. It really respects them. Uh, Peg, I think, is fantastic in it. Um, Edgar directs with ridiculous confidence and just like incredibly envious of mm. how good how good it is basically and I still just really every time it's on I end up watching it through and that's the first that was the first one wasn't it in his Cornetto trilogy what's he call it his Cornetto yeah, trilogy yeah so he'd done uh, Fistful of Fingers his kind of amateur film as a kid effectively yeah. which I, I haven't seen then he'd done Spaced which obviously is brilliant and then this was his first film. Yeah. Well, what I think of as his first film. Yeah, me too. Because I guess, I guess with space, he was playing with all those influences. And they were yeah. aping the kind of action films they loved and the horror films they loved. And then suddenly he gets to make a feature film, and he packs it in to that film. Because essentially, it's a rom com, isn't it? With zombies. Yeah, it's about it's about someone, you know, trying to figure out what they're doing with their life and coming mm. to responsibility and learning to grow up and get past themselves and, you know, but yeah, with also people trying to eat him. Now, you said, go back to a point you said earlier there, because you said that it's typically British, I think you said, or it's a very British film. When you, I mean, obviously, it, it's kind of like a daft question given we're talking about five great British horror films, but, but, but can you expand on that and sort of say why, why that's a good thing? And, and I don't think you're saying it because Britain's great and fuck the world, but, but there is something to be said about portraying a culture in a film, isn't there? We see a lot of American culture and we... We get used to it, don't we? We don't get to see British culture in film that much. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that's... I mean, this is slightly uh, going off at a cul-de-sac, but one of the things I like about Edgar Wright's films in general, it's like, I mean, okay, he has done stuff in North America and, mm. and Baby Driver this year, but he's also done British films and stayed in Britain with kind of Hollywood production values as mm. well. Like, he's not afraid to make genre movies over here, and that's a tricky thing because audiences don't necessarily go in for them. Mm. Um, but obviously they have in this in this case. I love that, you know, you know when Sean goes to the corner shop, and you know when he does that on a regular day, then versus when he does it when there's been the zombie apocalypse, and it's like it's kind of hard to tell the difference. We're all kind of like comatose and half dead at that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. People walking um, for the tube. And the kind of uh, the you know the the conversations in the pub, the friendships there. The oh, I certainly recognise the kind of the matey relationship there, and the frustration of Kate Ashfield, who's great in it as well. The social awkwardness, I think, is a very British thing. You know, obviously the the the, the playoff between the stepdad and the and the mum. And not wanting to say what everyone, and the, the inability of British people not to, not to want to say what elephants in the room. Yeah, we'll do anything we can not to be embarrassed, mm. including at the moment leaving the European Union because we just <laughs> don't want to be. We don't want to embarrass ourselves and go, sorry, we've made a terrible mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything to avoid it. Um, and the stepdad stuff, I think, is really strong in it. You know, um, and the and his mum. You know, the scene with his mum like gets me every time. Still, mm. I still find it really affecting. I must admit, I, I, I re-watched that scene in, in isolation to see how they, what they went through, what the rhythm of that sequence was. And it is a mask, because it's, it's, it's in the midst of what has been a kind of light-hearted romp around town surrounded by the, the, surrounded by the living dead. And then suddenly you've got Son being asked to shoot his own mum, mm. which, by any rule of comedy, is not a light moment. You can't really... And they do play it straight, don't they? That's what I think what, what helps the film get to its conclusion. Yeah, well, they go from the sort of like hitting zombies around the head with pool cues to then going, you know, get your hands off my mum and mm. then realising, oh, like, mum's going to die. I've got to 
But that it goes back to what you're saying. But it also that's that, that's Edgar Wright and 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 the rest of them paying their respects to the way that George Romero used zombies and how the, the idea of people coming back from the dead or becoming zombies is there going to be people you know and they could be people you love. Yeah, they're not just monsters, and I think that's yeah. that's the, what the what I think of as traditional pure zombie movies recognises. Mm. They are us, mm. and there's a, there's something really affecting about it. And Peg, I think, is really really good in that movie. I'm not, I think, because he's from a comedy background, he doesn't necessarily get the credit he deserves as a mm. technical actor. Um, I still think he's really moving in it. Mm. No, I agree. With you. It's, uh, it's. I mean, that's a film that um, took me took me a number of goes before I I sort of succumbed to its charms. It wasn't and it was it was just that classic thing of I'm the wrong wrong headspace, wrong time to watch this film and then I I see it now and I just go, yeah, it's uh, it presses all the right buttons at the right time. It's like if you could if you could draw a map of what an emotional journey is like for a film, mm. I can't imagine it getting better much better than what they achieved with Children of the Dead and yet they've done it while at the same time showing their love of zombie films. <laughs> As well, you're like going, that's too damn clever. It's funny how films affect you at different times and you wonder why you like them or why you didn't. I remember I watched Hot Fuzz the mm. first time and I didn't really get it. Mm. Like, and I watched it again recently, it's hilarious. I don't know whether it's just I was envious of Edgar's career or what back, back when I first well, saw but it. But I think but it's no, that British like... thing, I think sometimes we, we maybe don't like the mirror. I mean, there's a distance to watching a kind of dirt bowl, mumblecore indie set in the desert of Texas. And some wacky characters do wacky things, and you go, oh! But then the minute you go, it's in a it's in a suburban cul-de-sac in SE24, and you go, piss off! Mm. That doesn't happen. I think there's some truth in that. Like, uh, for, did you see Convenience recently, Kerry yeah, yeah, yeah. film? I really, really like that movie, and I thought if that had been set in an American gas station mm. instead of an English, well, suburbia, Richard Linklater's movie, it would have done a lot better. Wouldn't like, it? I think people would have embraced it more. I think it's a really, really funny film. Mm. Um, which would probably have got a bit more support if it had been American. No, I mean, I, I, the other one, I think there's another film, that, and it's not, I'm waiting for it to, to come up because I think it, can cro it crosses the genre thing, is frequently asked questions about time travel. Oh, yeah. I, th I don't know why that isn't more, everyone I've played it to loves it, mm -hmm. and yet it's not a film that got that many pats on the back at the time. Oh, you see, I'm thinking of a different film. I haven't seen that, I'll have to watch it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris O'Dowd from IT Crowd in a pub in East London, and they get caught in a time loop. Oh, sounds great. Oh, it's amazing. Anyway, that's for another day. Your final choice for your five great British horror films is one of my favourites, I must admit, is Ben Wheatley's Kill This from 2011. Um, when that film played at Fright Fest, I went and saw it the week later at the Curzon Soho because I just couldn't wait to see it again. So that, re that, that kind of reaction to a film rarely happens. So you tell me, what, what, was, what caught your eye? I remember going to see it, I think it was the Odeon Tottenham Court Road, it had been open, uh, it, I guess it had been out for a week or something, mm. it wasn't like, so it was like me and like one other person in the cinema, and it's a really bad film to watch with only one other person in the cinema who's <laughs> behind you. Yeah. Like, it's one of the most upsetting experiences. I think I put it up there in terms of the visceral reaction to it to when I saw Seven. I remember seeing Seven uh, University, you know, I think I must have been... Uh, it was 20 or something, mm. 97 that came out, mm -hmm. and leaving it and just thinking, like, oh, everyone wants to hurt me, like, or just feeling really troubled mm. by it. And Kill List had the very same reaction, like, that sense of, like, there's someone behind you. Um, just the kind of evilness in the everyday. I, th I mean, on a personal level, I, I kind of watched it, I was like, I kind of gulped and went, 
it's almost like you see something you go, that's the film I want to make. I wasn't writing anything like it, but I suddenly go, oh shit, you can do that? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, are you, are you with it? I mean, for those that, I'm, I'm going to spoil it a bit here, for those that might not have seen it yet, there's a certain jump in the film which goes from being a hitman on the run, something weird's going on, to full-on kind of wicker man sacrifice conclusion. Mm -hmm. Was you with was you with that as a move? I've had um, what's he called? My mind's gone back. Andy Stark, one of the producers of it, mm -hmm. on the podcast, and one of the biggest noises they got from the film was. I loved it right up until it went to Wicker Man, and, he, and they've like now they name those people uh, Act Three Deniers, <laughs> and it's this thing about you're not allowed to do what you've done with your own film because I wanted somewhere else. It's like that's not a criticism. <laughs> I think it justifies itself. I think it's a you know it it makes a lot of sense. Mm. It, you know it really is. I mean it, they literally go underground and it does become claustrophobic. And mm. by that point you are weirdly kind of in love with you know Neil Masculine. Michael Smiley, despite the fact they've done these terrible things, because you know that there's probably some greater evil around them. So even though they've done terrible things, it's like there's worse coming. Yeah, at least and, they're at least they're <clears> victims <throat> of like post-traumatic stress. They're not an evil, an evil secret society. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like there's always someone worse. I also think as much as they're assassins, they're ex-soldiers, and I also I always felt like there was a bit of a metaphor there. I don't, I've never heard Wheatley or Andy start talk about it like for just the, the way that people get consumed by their jobs and what you're prepared to do in work, what you're prepared to do. You mean follow orders? Yeah, you're like, yeah, eff effectively. <laughs> like, oh, I'll do this, I'll do that, yeah, that's yeah. fine, no matter what the cost is to my family. And people sacrifice their families all the times in much less dramatic ways than being, you know, assassins for hire. Um, maybe I'm projecting too much. <laughs> maybe that says more about where I was in my have you, life. Have you, have, you, have you ever, I mean, it's another film I've, 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 I've had the pleasure of trying to sort of look at in more detail. And there's an absolute symmetry in the film. From the from the the, the, the moment where the hammer is employed, mm -hmm. which is a fairly that is bang centre of the movie almost. And either end of it is the scene in the garden playing with the uh, piggyback with the yeah. foam swords and the killing your own child. I wonder at what point that came into the process. I don't I mean I, I I'd like to think it was Part of the evolution. I can't believe someone could have thought of that. Let's let's work out from the, let's work out from the hammer attack and go because well, it is beautifully symmetrical. Well, the thing they say about great movies or great twists or great endings is they should feel inevitable and also completely surprising. Mm. And when it happened, I was like, oh no, oh, and also oh, of course. It's not like it's you know it's been there all the time. Well, the first plant that sort of goes alight and you realise that what was following him that he was running from was waiting for him. There was a, there was no surprise to them about them trying to shoot the MP. Mm -hmm. um, it's because I, 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 and in Story Sense as well, they 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 give you the curveball of they've uncovered a paedophile plot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's the least of what they've uncovered. And I, and I don't know about you, the the way they're sparing as well. You know, this idea of what happened in Kiev. Mm -hmm. We've no idea, have we? We've no idea. Again, like prequel. I, want mm. a I demand a prequel. <laughs> when, he, when he's pulling those folders apart and you just see the word Kiev and a couple of photographs and yeah, it's just like, all you need to know is something went wrong. Mm -hmm. Or the, I mean, a favourite scene is the uh, Christians playing guitar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just, I get a bit, it's that thing in it where you've got, um, there's plot moving forward and then there's just character. 
and the power of characters who'll do the things that you maybe have thought about doing but mm. don't have the stones necessarily to do and the good and bad of that and that where he then ends up I mean Neil Mascot I think is one of is, is a fairly I don't know, fairly underused actor I'd like I'd like to see him in more stuff I mean he, he was in the obviously Utopia on the TV and stuff but I'd like to see him more in movies yeah, I kind of assumed that after Kill List that he would be cast in everything. Um, and maybe he's been cast in a lot more stuff than I haven't seen. But he's done TV. I mean, he was—he's been in various stuff. I've seen him in things, but not as much as. Because I think he's got an amazing presence. I saw him in a short film with someone who's on the Bella Podcast, whose name I can't remember. He plays like an alcoholic dad with a kid who wants to become a swimmer. And the, the director said to me that you know, Maskell's a very sort of goes into character mm. and don't come out. Well, I think it's it's hard to. Maybe it's there aren't that many roles that call for you to be that strong. Mm. I mean, like, there's a certain like brutishness there, which I think is really useful, and it's not really that present in a lot of actors. Like, no, you would definitely. I mean, I don't know him. I'm not saying. No, I don't. I'm not saying him. let's not go for a beer. I'm but, but when watching actors who you'd be worried to have a confrontation mm. with, that's really really valuable and useful. But I'm not sure how many parts there are for that. Yeah, because so Michael in, Smiley, in, on the other hand, you've yeah. he's peppered British cinema at the moment. I think since mm. ever since that film, I think he's mm. been. I'm not, he's not. Oh, you know, you, you're not. You're not. You're not. He's not A-list when he stretches imagination, but he's in. A, he's in a lot of British movies, and he and he gives his. He, he always gives a good performance. Yeah, I don't know if that what that comes down. I mean, he's incredibly talented. Mm. Like whether it comes down to opportunity, um, or or who knows. I mean, he's just got incredible range though as well. Mm. Smiley, because Smiley can be your best mate or your worst enemy in a film. Mm. You know, and to be able to do both of those things, I think, is extraordinary. Yeah. The. Um I'll never, he's in, in another in the Down Terrace. Smiley's joke about his own child was about to do the death grip on another child had to pull him off. And that's hilarious to a hitman. That's just so amazing. Well look, Nev, uh, before you go, um you've got some short films that you're making available. So do you want to give us a plug? as to when they'll be available and what they're called. So we've got Bricks, Ghosted and Lockin, which will be coming out on February the 5th. They'll be on Vimeo um, and also on my website, nevpierce.com. Okay. And they will appear at some point on the YouTube channel, Tall Tales. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for giving us your five great British horror films. Britflix.com podcast is provided totally free without any outside advertising. So if you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe at iTunes and write me a review. Thank you.